Well, what must that have been like for Peter? I mean, just think about that for a moment. Peter the brash, Peter the bold, Peter who had promised, Jesus, I will die with you, to then go and, you know, deny him three times. Jesus, never heard of him. And then, now in this moment, to be standing face to face with the Messiah he had rejected. I mean, Judas, right, the guy who betrayed Jesus, he hung himself. I mean, it almost seems like the easier way out, doesn't it? Because now, here, and Peter and Jesus sit down for a little breakfast. Well, a few weeks ago, I found myself in a situation in which I was very, very quickly humbled. Uh, I was out of town. I was at a meeting. I I was sitting down at a table all day with a handful of of Christians. Uh, I didn't really know them very well, but we we sat there. and, And while I listened to their conversation, at one point, a handful of words unmistakably crept into my mind. Kind of embarrassing, shameful words. I had this this inescapable realization, oh my goodness, I don't like Christians. I mean, I remember sitting there thinking that, and it was an oh my, you know, kind of a pit of my stomach sort of moment, and immediately it was, you know, filled with with guilt and and all of this thinking, oh, I mean, how can you be a pastor? You don't like Christians. I can even be a Christian and not like Christians. I mean, Nathan, what's, I even had to call Kelly in the middle of the day so she could sort of talk me off the ledge, right? I mean, it was, it was one of those moments. And, and I've, I've done some thinking about that since, um, obviously. And uh, even just to clarify, now, I, I, want to be, I want to be gracious to those well-meaning individuals that I spent the day with, um, because I'm, I'm sure that there were things about me that they also found completely ridiculous or whatever. I, 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 I get that. Uh, and yet it's, it's, not so much, it's not so much Christians that I don't like. I mean, I do like, you know, most of you, right? Um, <laughs> give, or, give or take. Uh, it, it's that stereotype, right, that... that, that sort of was driving me crazy in that moment. And we all know that stereotype, don't we? Sort of the, and I, again, I want to be gracious to those individuals with that. Kind of the, maybe a little judgmental, gossipy, maybe a tiny bit power-hungry or angry, frankly, a little bit dweebish, right? And, and just always right about everything. And, and I realize some of you probably think that describes me nicely, doesn't it? Okay, I, again, I, I understand that. And yet we all, we all kind of know that stereotype. We all push back against it. I mean, it felt a little bit like this. You were a believer, yes, but you skipped the not being a jerk about it part. It's a pretty important detail, isn't it? And I'm, I'm guessing that I'm not alone here. Christians can be weird, sinful, sometimes absolutely disgraceful, and downright infuriating. And here we are, willingly surrounded, right? Church, what's it all for? What, what, good, is, what good is the church? What, what is the point of this bizarre, quirky little institution called the church? Why do we gather together? 
Some of you are sitting there, you know, really asking that question, right, of, yeah, why am I here, you know, seriously? And, and, and for some of you, I know your stories, right? A lot of you, you have, you know, maybe grew up in church, uh, for whatever reason, stepped away from church, and now you're kind of maybe a little bit sort of back, and you've chosen this place, and you're still kind of wondering, right? You're just kind of trying it out a little bit. I, I get that. Or, or maybe, you know, kids, students, um, right now your parents bring you here, Right? It's what they do, so you come. But what about, what about when you go off to college? What about when you gain just a little bit more independence? What, what then? Because there, there can be no doubt about it, right? The church can be messy. It can be awkward. Uh, the relationships can be hard. The sermons and the services can be boring. I mean, we, we, we get all that. We, we know that. Sometimes it's ineffective. Sometimes it's frustrating, Sometimes Christians can be weird. And yet, well, I mean, whose idea was it, after all? I mean, Jesus, right? Son of God, the one who died and and rose again, the only one through whom we have any hope at life. It was his idea us, right? This was his plan A. You've got to be kidding, right? And yet at the same time, you know, all that difficulty, I mean, you know this, right? All the difficulty, all the mess, all the sinful brokenness, all the whatever it happens to be that you don't like about Christians or the church, all of that, I mean, it really shouldn't be that surprising, should it? I'm not, I'm not trying to justify it or, or excuse our weird and sometimes just completely disgraceful behavior. And yet, look at who the first Christians were. I mean, the first Christian leaders, right? I mean, the very first pastor of the church was that guy Peter that we just read about. Jesus had said to him, upon you, Peter, I will build my church. And when I read that, I think, him? Really? I mean, that's, that's the best you could do, Jesus? That's, that's where you're going to begin? Peter and a bunch of other ragamuffin disciples? But here's what we learned from God's word this morning. Jesus builds with broken pieces. Always. I mean, it's, it's actually kind of his, his specialty. It's what he did then. It's what he still does now. Of course it's going to be messy. But it's his masterpiece. Jesus builds with broken pieces. I mean, what a story. What a story. So yeah, we, we read most of it together here. But let's, let's walk through this a bit. Because if we... We're to look back. I mean, we've already talked about his death and resurrection as we've been working our way in, in the Gospel of John and in Jesus' life. But if we look back, right, Peter had denied Jesus three times. I mean, kids, that's, that's sort of like if you're being bullied at school, right, um, and you keep, the bully keeps mistreating you, and, and you have this really good friend, right? And, and one day, the bully is mistreating you, and your really good friend walks by, and the bully turns to your really good friend and says, hey, do you, do you know this kid that I'm, you know, mistreating or, or whatever he's doing? And, and your really good friend says, no, no, we're not friends. I don't know him. 
mean, that, that's the kind of thing that has happened. Peter has done that three times to Jesus, the Son of God, right, in order to save his own skin. And Peter knew that Jesus knew exactly what had happened. That was in John 18. I mean, this morning, really, we're going to focus primarily on John 21 and the beginning part. And so in between that time, those three chapters, yes, Jesus died, he rose again, and he has appeared to his disciples two times. Peter was there both of those times, but not once has Jesus spoken to Peter. In fact, last week, you remember, uh, Jesus specifically came back to Thomas, the doubter, in order to restore Thomas. Peter was there. And he had to be thinking, what about me, Jesus? I mean, do I get a little restoration? I mean, I, I picture him in those moments, in the corner, ashamed, hiding away. I mean, just imagine the weight of silence that Peter must have felt. I mean, Jesus had told me. I mean, he must, he must have thought this, right? He must have reminisced back. Jesus had told me that he was going to build his community, his, his new people. He was going to build his church on me. You can read about that in Matthew 16. And Jesus has given me a new name, right? No longer Simon. He named me Peter, which literally means rock. I am to be his rock. And I'm a disgrace. A failure. I mean, he must have, in those moments, thought, you know, that's it. I'm done, right? There's, there's no possible way that there's any use left for me. And now, every time I see Jesus feels like he just ignores me. I'm going fishing. And you really can't blame him in that moment. I mean, some have tried to say that what the disciples are are doing here is is inappropriate, that they're sort of regressing back into who they were. I don't think that's the case at all. I mean, what what else do a bunch of ex-fishermen do when their leader is crucified, who then, you know, rises from the dead, but is only occasionally available to them? They don't know what the mission is yet. They They don't know what's going on. This is before Pentecost, before the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them there, and they're sent out. And Jesus had told them, Wait for me in Galilee. Might as well fish while we wait. I mean, life, life goes on. They needed to eat, right? I mean, this, this is what they knew. And so off they went. Fishing. It was Peter's idea. And I love in the story how it says, well, all the, dis- the disciples there, they say, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go with you, Peter. I mean, it almost makes me wonder if they're still kind of not letting Peter be by himself too much, you know? I mean, they know what Peter has done. They also know what, what Judas did, right? It's almost like he's on a, on a suicide watch. But regardless, what, whatever's happening here, they all go, and they spend the whole night fishing, and they catch nothing. I mean, I'm sure they're a little bit rusty, but zero fish can't can't these guys do anything right? And so they're frustrated, discouraged, of course. And it's early morning. The sun is just beginning to sort of peek up over the, over the horizon, just barely getting light. There's still a dense fog over the lake. They're about 100 yards out from shore when all of a sudden a stranger starts shouting to them from the shore. Hey there, boys. Any luck? What, no fish? Now, these were professional fishermen, okay? It came with the territory. 
They, they knew that, that, I mean, this is what people do, right? Even, even today, it doesn't matter what culture, what place you're in, everybody's got an opinion on how you should fish, right? And, and so they're, they're used to this kind of advice, people shouting things from the shore, and, and all of a sudden, the guy, well, you know, why don't you try the other side of the boat? Put, put your net over there. Yeah, like, we haven't tried that already. I mean, like, that's going to make any huge difference. So, I mean, think about this, right? These, these guys, what was supposed to be a relaxing, productive night fishing has been nothing but a disappointment. Just another reminder that their lives will never be the same. There's, there's no going back. And now some punk on the shore is trying to tell them how to do their jobs. But at this point, they're tired. They're frustrated. Easier to give in than to argue. And so they toss their net to the other side of the shore. And instantly, as soon as the net hits the water, the the ropes tighten, the, the whole boat lurches and water splashes as the fish just pour in. I mean, it's like they want to get caught. I mean, they, they, they can't even lift the net. I mean, these are grown men, fishermen, right? They can't even lift the net out of the water. 153 fish in total. And they're fishermen. Of course they counted, right? That's what they do. 153. And they knew. I mean, John, John is the one who, who recognizes it first. I mean, this, this had happened before. But John, in that moment, he turns to Peter. Notice that. Not to the other disciples. He says specifically to Peter, you know it's the Lord, right? And what does Peter do? Continues sulking, right? Hiding in his his shame, wanting to go the other way, unable to forgive himself, right? I'm feeling that way. No, not for a second. In fact, he doesn't even think about it. He cinches up his clothes, throws himself into the sea, and swims that hundred yards back to the shore. He gets out, and he walks over to the Messiah he's rejected. I mean, he leaves all the other disciples, right, you know, lugging the nets back to shore. I'm sure they were probably a little bit irritated at first, but they knew Peter needed this. He needed this moment. Soaking wet, probably a slight shiver in the cool morning air, his head down as he walks over to the fire Jesus had prepared for them. In silence. Nothing. Nothing but that smell. You know how smells can like conjure up all kinds of memories and images. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing how powerful the sense of smell is. And not just any smell. This isn't just any fire. John tells us it's a charcoal fire. Why would he tell us that, right? I mean, who really cares what the fire is made out of? Well, Peter cares. Because the last time Peter warmed himself by a charcoal fire, it was that same night that he denied Jesus. It was that same moment. You can't tell me that's a coincidence. Only two places in the entire New Testament is a charcoal fire mentioned. One is here on the shore as Jesus stands before his Messiah. And the other is in John 18, 18, as he swore that he never knew who he was. You can't tell me those smells didn't conjure up memories. Peter stood there before Jesus 
The shame overwhelmed him once again, just like the very first time. Jesus was cooking breakfast. I mean, we picture Jesus preaching. We picture him doing miracles. We picture him dying on a cross. Picture him wearing a dirty apron, cooking breakfast for his friends. Think about that. Even for Peter, the Son of God, in all of his resurrected glory, cooking breakfast. There is nothing mundane in the entire universe. By this point, all of them are there on shore together. I picture them seated around the the, the fire together, eating breakfast, the fire cracking, the fish still sizzling, their chilled bodies slowly warming as the firelight lights up their master. And the laughter... I mean, this had to have felt in many ways, just like old times, right? What, what a tasty breakfast that must have been. Except for Peter. Because Peter is still silent. Still full of shame. It's not like him to, to pick at his food, but he just couldn't shake it. And there, in that moment, finally, Jesus looks at Peter. There in front of all the disciples that are there, he looks at them. You know, Jesus, he could give you the kind of look. I mean, when, when he looked at you, you felt on, on the one hand, I mean, you felt, I mean, you knew that he knew everything, right? Everything about you. And yet, on the other hand, you couldn't help but feel more love than you'd ever felt in your life. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says to him, Simon. And Simon was his original name, his birth name. Jesus had given him the name Peter, Rock, but here he goes back to his original name, Simon. Do you love me more than these? I think the idea there is, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Because, that, I mean, that had been Peter's thing, right? All throughout with traveling with Jesus. I mean, when Peter was feeling more confident, he would say things that you, you knew he thought he was the best of the disciples, right? The greatest of all of them. That he loved them more than anyone else. And so Jesus says, Simon, do you? Do you love me more than these? The Lord, Lord, you, you know that I love you. Well, then, Simon, there's something I want you to do for me. I want you to feed my lambs. And and by the way, Simon, while I've got you here, I've got a question for you. Do you love me? Imagine Peter in that moment. I mean, uh, yeah, uh, Lord, you, you know that I love you. Well, good, Simon, I've, I've got something I want you to do for me. I want you to take care of my sheep. Oh, and, and, and by the way, Simon, while I've, while I've got you, I've got a question for you. Simon, do you love me? Three times, he asks. It's no coincidence. Three times Peter had denied Jesus. Now three times Jesus says to him, do you love me? The text says that this this grieved Peter deep within. He he knew what he had done, and he felt the the sorrow, the weight of everything 
And yet Jesus once again tenderly asks that third time, Simon, do you love me? Lord, Lord, you know everything. And Peter believed that Jesus is God. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Peter, there's something I want you to do. I want you to feed my sheep. Don't miss it. Don't, don't miss what's, what's going on here. Jesus builds with broken pieces. In many ways, this story may seem strange to us. You know, is Jesus like rubbing his face and, and his mistakes, just kind of rehashing it over and over? I don't, I don't think so at all. I think what's, what's happening here is three times Peter denied Jesus. Three times Peter had essentially in his mind disqualified himself to do anything worthwhile for, for the Messiah. And three times Jesus looks at him and said, I'm not done with you. Peter, I'm not, I'm not done with you yet. Three times Peter had publicly rejected his Savior and three times Jesus publicly there in front of all the disciples publicly restores him publicly gives him a job to do there says three times you are not disqualified listen there is nothing you could ever do that could stop jesus from loving you from pursuing you nothing 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 no matter how terrible it may seem no matter what it was nothing if you run to him he's eager to welcome you back but you know this story really isn't about Peter, I don't think. I mean, sure, Peter's on display here, and yes, Jesus is putting the pieces of Peter's life back together, but I don't think it's really about Peter. Jesus builds with broken pieces, so what is he building? Peter is is forgiven, but his forgiveness is not without purpose. It's not without mission. Jesus says, what, what, what does he say? He says, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. Friends, he's talking about us us. We're his flock. We're we're this thing called the church, and Jesus is recommissioning Peter to do this work. I am not done with you, Peter. And that's true. And here in this story, we learn three inescapable truths about the church. And this, this thing, right, this organic, quirky institution, church, as difficult as it may be, Sometimes awkward, sometimes ineffective, as hard as it is sometimes to like other Christians. Three inescapable truths. The church is messy, the church is precious, and the church is his. You really can't mess it here. The church is messy, okay? I mean, if this is how it all begins, what else would we expect, right? And I know one of, the, one of the things we probably hear most often from, from those who don't believe, right, as, as understandable criticism against Christians in the church, understand, I'm not at all pushing back to they, that they say this, but we hear this a lot, right, that Christians are, are, are hypocritical, um, that our lives are just as messy as theirs, that the church is broken, and so why bother? I mean, we, we hear that, don't we, and understandably. And while that's not okay, okay, it's not, hypocrisy is not okay. It's also not really all that surprising, is it? Again, I'm not, I'm not trying to, 
to make excuses by any means because we are, we are called to live and to follow this Jesus and to have lives that follow this Jesus. And yet the mess should not surprise us because what is the church really? What, who are we? I mean, the church is by definition a group of self-selecting individuals who by very nature of gathering together have said, I don't have what it takes. My life is such a mess. I am so broken, so sinful that I need someone else to reach down and pull me out of the dust. That's what the church is. I mean, Christians are not people who have it all together, right? That, that's, not what, that's not what it means to be a, a Christian, is to have your junk figured out. In fact, chances are, Jesus, if you think you have your junk figured out, Jesus probably wants really nothing to do with you, right? That's what, kind of what the Gospels teach. Every time you walk through these doors, I mean, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, a Christian, every time you walk through these doors, You admit to God, to yourself, and to everyone else. You say it loud and clear. Every time we walk through these doors, I am such a rotten sinner that my only hope at life is with Jesus. That's it. That's what we say by gathering, that that I can't do it. I need someone else to rescue me. And if, if that is who we are, if that's who I am and that's who we are together, it's going to get messy. just like Peter. But it also means, just like Peter, that we can be restored, forgiven, and even transformed, but you can only do that by running to Jesus, not running from him. And just even for a moment, just think about what this would do to our community if we actually believed this, right? What it would would do to the church across whatever, in all places, if if we actually believed this. Think about the vulnerability we could have. There's no lies, no secrets, no hiding, no nice little church faces to make everybody happy. Because if if this is who we are, right? I mean, sinful people who have been restored and who are being restored. Why would we hide from one another? Just think about the kind of grace and patience and forgiveness that we would offer. Think about that for a moment. If, if we actually believe that I am so messed up that Jesus, God himself, had to, had to die to save me, I mean, how could I possibly hold other people's junk against them if God isn't willing to do that to me? How could we? The church is a bunch of broken people being restored. It's going to get messy. But it's his masterpiece. Jesus builds with broken pieces. This also means the church is precious. It's his masterpiece. And don't miss this in the story. I mean, what, is, what, is Peter, what does Jesus tell Peter to do if he loves him, right? I mean, he makes it clear over and over and over again, right? If you love me, this is what it's going to look like, Peter. By caring for his sheep. Don't miss this. Loving the shepherd, loving the great shepherd, Jesus. Loving the shepherd means loving the sheep. That's what it means. Loving Jesus means loving his bride, the church. This is Jesus' love language. Jesus calls Peter, and he calls all of his disciples, that's, that's us if we follow him, calls us to be on mission with him, to, to build his church, to care for his people, to feed them, to love them even the ones who are really hard to love, maybe especially the ones who are really hard to love. 
I mean, being part of a local church is not an option for the follower of Jesus. It's not an option. And I don't, I don't mean showing up for 75 minutes on Sundays. I'm sorry. I mean, that, that's attending a local church. I said being part of a local church. It means, it means giving and serving and loving and, and encouraging one another and praying for one, one another and caring for one another. And, and frankly, all of those one another's in Scripture that we are commanded to do, at a church our size, they can't be done on Sunday mornings. It's just not possible. Those, those relationships aren't, aren't going to get deep enough here. I mean, if you're not in a small group, you will not obey the one another's of Scripture. It's just not going to happen. You can't. These things, these aren't options for followers of Jesus. Jesus looks at you, and he looks at me, and he asks, do you love me? Do you? Do you? Well, yeah, Jesus, sure. And his response is, well, then take care of my, my, my church. Love it. Nourish it. Be the church. Care for it. Provide for it. Speak well of it. And certainly this extends outside these walls, right? I mean, this isn't just something here on Sunday mornings. The, the mission is not confined to this building, just as it wasn't confined certainly to a building for, for Peter as he envisioned it, right? This happens for us at the PTA and at, on the playground and the soccer field and in the office and at home and in our neighborhoods and schools everywhere. For the poor and marginalized, I mean, we are the church together. That means that you take the church with you wherever you go. That's, that's who we are. Maybe you feel inadequate thinking about this. Good, right? But it's so easy to slip into that, right? I'm, I, just, I couldn't teach Sunday school. I, I, I couldn't lead a small group. I couldn't share my faith with somebody else. And, and we, we feel that. I mean, anybody else, right, feel inadequate as we think about this thing that Jesus is calling us to? I mean, do you have any, any idea how ridiculously inadequate I feel up here every Sunday? Do you have any idea? It's, it's painful sometimes, truth, truly. But how do you think Peter felt? Peter, who had denied Jesus, do you think it made a difference in his life, how inadequate he must have felt? Of course not. Jesus had given him a job to do. He's given us one too. To be his church. You cannot love Jesus and ignore his mission. You can't do it. You cannot love Jesus and ignore his people. It just cannot be done. The church is too precious. Jesus builds with broken pieces. Finally, the church is his. Because Jesus here, he calls us his sheep, his lambs, his flock. Christ community doesn't belong to me. It doesn't even belong to you or to us. It's his. I, I love even where... Jesus takes this conversation with Peter. If we were to, to keep reading here in, in verse 18 as, as John sort of wraps up his gospel. That's what he says in verse 18. Jesus speaking to Peter. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Which, you know, until you get to verse 19, it's like, I have no idea what that's talking about, right? But, but John explains it to us. He tells us what, what Jesus meant. He's, says in verse 19, this Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. 
Now keep in mind, John is writing these things long after they happened, okay? Long after the birth of the church, long after the, the book of Acts, even long after Peter was executed for his faith in Jesus. John knew what was going to happen. So did Jesus. At the end of verse 19, Jesus says, After saying this, Jesus said to him, said to Peter, follow me. It's not about us. It's about him. And let me just even just quickly add here, in my opinion, this is one of the greatest evidences of the resurrection. That these bunch of cowards, right, who we have just seen in the Gospels, abandon Jesus, Peter denies him. I mean, they, they're kind of the worst. But as soon as they experience the resurrection, as soon as they see that, that Jesus is alive once more, I mean, it's, it's trans, transformative to them. I mean, they, they actually go out, most of them, and are imprisoned, tortured, and murdered. I mean, Peter, tradition tells us, Peter was executed, uh, crucified upside down for his work in building the church. I mean, nothing explains transformation like that, the resurrection. Now, this is all kind of news, though, for Peter there on the shore. Right? You can imagine, okay, what what would you say, Jesus? What's going to happen? Can you explain that a little bit? And in that moment, Peter then, I mean, Peter still, he's, he's still got his issues, right? He, he turns and he looks at John, uh, says the disciple Jesus loved. That's John's sort of nickname for himself in, in the gospel. We can talk about that another time. Um, but he, he turns to John, Peter does, and says, yeah, well, what, what about him, Peter says? What's, what's going to happen to John? Is he going to be killed too? But look how, look how Jesus responds. Verse 22. He says, Peter, what is that to you? What business is that of yours? Follow me, he says. I mean, how quickly we begin to think it's all about us. Whether it's church or faith or our family or situation or even just Jesus himself, that it all just sort of revolves around us. It's all about me. And how quick we are to, to compare ourselves to others or think, you know, they got more money or they seem happier. Their life has been so much easier. How quickly we do that. But Jesus says, you know what? What is that to you? It's none of your business. He says, your job is to follow me. I think what Jesus is saying essentially is you are mine, these people are mine, his church is mine, everything is mine, and what I do with it is up to me. Our job is to follow. Not everybody gets the same. Don't compare yourself to others. And frankly, expect suffering. The New Testament teaches that that's part of the Christian life for us, that we ought to expect to suffer in this world. But that's okay, because it's not about us. We don't have to get what we want. We don't have to always get our ways or live happily ever after. Our job is to follow. And even as we think about the church, you're not going to like everything the church does, right? You're not going to like all the sermons or all the songs or all the programs. You're certainly not going to like all the people, right? It's just, you're not. But what is that to you? Jesus says, follow me. The church is his. Jesus builds with broken pieces. You know, honestly, I say a lot of things on Sundays. You've probably noticed that. Sometimes a few too many things. Others, you know, you, you're ready for me to be done. But most of the things that I, that I say 
hopefully come with like some reasonable evidence, right? To back it up. Hopefully they're all rooted in, in scripture, right? That's our, our authority. Hopefully that's the case. But very rarely do the things I say come with a whole lot of proof, right? I mean, that's just, it just doesn't really work that way in the nature of, of faith. And yet this one, Jesus builds with broken pieces. Just look around. I mean, it's what he's been doing for the last 2,000 years. And just even look here, look in this place. Look what he continues to do through us and in us and, and with us. I mean, the stories that, that we could share of what Jesus has done, even here in this place. We've been here for seven years now. That The people who have come to faith in Jesus, the kids who are growing up stronger in their faith, who, people being changed and, and growing families and, and schools and workplaces, all of that, we, we get to see that here. That Jesus continues to do it. I mean, one of the things that as pastors, we, we love to be able to, to sit down and share these stories with one another. We cling to these stories as pastors. Um, and recently, a handful of us on staff here were, were just chatting through some of these things, all of these different evidences, these rumors of God's presence in our midst. Um, I think all of us would say on staff that in, in our seven years here, um, we have never seen it quite this incredible. What God continues to do, we've not, not that it wasn't happening before, but that, that somehow God is, he's alive and he's at work. And look, at, he uses us, you, together. I mean, isn't that, a, isn't that amazing that, that God does this? I mean, Jesus said, I will build my church, and he keeps doing it, and he, he builds broken people to do it, like you, even like the really broken person sitting next to you, and me, together. I mean, living proof, Jesus builds with broken pieces. And just like Peter, he's not done with us yet. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm just so thankful that you came back for Peter. I'm so thankful that John recorded these words for us to see this this individual who had so deeply rejected you, so eagerly be brought back in by you. God, that gives me so much hope for me, for us, that you actually do, you say it, but you actually do seek sinners. You actually do pursue those whose lives are a mess and who feel so broken. And that you offer us grace and forgiveness. Lord Jesus, God, I pray that we would embrace that. For those who who aren't Christians here who don't follow you, Lord, I pray that you you would speak to them, that you, through your spirit, in ways that we can't even fully understand, that you would help them see that this, as messy as it is, that this life is better that you'd give them the gift of belief, trust. God, I pray that all of us here would be encouraged that this is, this is the work that you do, Lord Jesus, in us, that you restore us, that you aren't done with us yet, and that you would encourage us and motivate us, empower us to do this work that you asked Peter to do 2,000 years ago, God. We don't, 
we don't think you're done yet. Not with us individually, not with Christ's community, not with your church globally. Continue to do your work. And do your work through us. We pray these things not for our glory, God, not for the goodness of our own name or our reputation, not so that people will like us, so that we'll think we're important, but simply, Lord Jesus, for your glory. For you are our rock and our redeemer.